So first, I'd like to congratulate all of you for making it through the first day. Too loud. Not too loud. <laughs> oh. How about now? Okay. Thank you, Anna. And thank you for the other opinion as well. <laughs> as I was saying, I wanted to congratulate you for making it through the first day. And I imagine there are a few of you today Maybe even if you're willing to say, how many of you planned your escape? (laughs) How many of you realized that you were crazier than you thought? (laughs) This is all good news. As uh, one of my favorite uh, passages suggests, This is a part of the talk tonight. It won't be exclusively about this, but this is a really necessary part of of settling into a process like this is to actually normalize uh, what we may think is really quite uh, unique to us, crazy, shouldn't be this way. And this is what Bhante Gunaratna said, uh, Sri Lankan teacher. Somewhere in the process of meditation, you will come face to face with the sudden realization that you are completely crazy. Your mind is a shrieking madhouse on wheels barreling down the hill, utterly out of control and helpless. No problem. You are not any crazier than you were yesterday. It's always been this way, and you never noticed. Just put in a little bit more optimistic light. François Fenelon in 1651, just so that you know that there's nothing new under the sun. He said, as light increases, which means what we've been doing, we've been putting the light of attention on our experience. As light increases, we see ourselves to be worse than we thought. We are amazed at our former blindness as we see issuing forth from the depths of our heart a a whole swarm of shameful thoughts and feelings like filthy reptiles crawling from a hidden cave. We never could have believed that we had harbored such things and we stand aghast as we watch them gradually appear. But we must neither be amazed nor disheartened. We are not any worse than we were. On the contrary, we are better. But while our faults diminish, the light by which we see them waxes brighter. And we are filled with horror. Bear in mind for your comfort that we only perceive our malady when the cure begins. I like this one line here where he says, while our faults diminish, the light by which we see them waxes brighter. It is so interesting and so uniquely human that our difficulties and the things that present themselves, just the difficulties of settling in, when when we meet them with awareness, those very same, very uncomfortable, unpleasant experiences become the cause of our of the brightening of our, they become the cause of mindfulness. They actually help us develop the capacity to know, to know and to comprehend what's happening. So that's a, I, I consider that a very unique 
uh, attribute of our, of our minds that uh, our difficulties become our path. And I, and I say this because the first day is often really difficult. We cannot believe how much tension there is in the body, how hard it is to just be where we are. It's, it's quite amazing. It's why it's often described the process, process of, of practice or awakening as going against the stream. And it's against the stream of every habit from that, we, that we practice mostly in our life, the habits that we've spoken about already of distraction, of, of acquisition, of just continually, you could say, going out of ourselves in search. So what we're actually doing here, on one hand, is we are going against the stream of our conditioning. What we're really doing in the same way is we are entering the stream of our nature. We're actually coming back to nature. And we're often thinking about nature. We're often not feeling it. We're not feeling that intimacy with it. And we start with the most natural, most unique expression of nature as it exists in our body is our, is our life breath. And we are entering, we are trying to re-enter the stream of connection, of wholeness, of sufficiency, of peace, fulfilling that deepest yearning, the hidden, mean, the hidden yearning that we have in everything that we do in our life is the expected, the expected result is to be able to say, ah, I've arrived. And we're... Actually, through, the, through our practice, we're suggesting that you don't need to wait to arrive. You don't need to wait until the end of the rainbow, to the end of your life, or the end of seven lifetimes, that the purpose of your life is always arrived at in the present moment. This is what Alan Watts said. When we make music... We don't do it in order to reach a certain point, such as the end of the composition. If that were the purpose of music, then obviously the fastest players would be the best. Also, when we're dancing, we're not aiming to arrive at a particular place on the floor as in taking a journey. When we dance, the journey itself is the point. And when we play music, the playing itself is the point. And exactly the same is true in meditation. Meditation is the discovery that the point of life is always arrived at in the immediate moment. The truth, and you could say the sad truth, is we have never really left the present moment. But what we have left, you could say, or what what is true, is that we have been here all along, but we've ignored it. We've been here without the benefit of mindful attention, without the benefit of clearly comprehending that we're here, clearly sensing what it's like to be here. And Anna talked about how we don't, we're here, but we're not really here. You don't really, and it's true, we've always been here, but we haven't noticed. We haven't noticed the life of the present moment. We haven't noticed what nature is actually up to as it's expressing itself so uniquely through each of our uh, holy bodies. As the Buddha called it, this fathom-long body 
where the whole world exists. And you are, you're not separate from nature. You're not, you're not, it's not like you take a walk in nature. You are nature taking a walk. Uh, but we've, we haven't been, we haven't been there for it. We haven't been here for it. And as John Lennon put it, and, and I'm paraphrasing, life has been what's happening while we've been busy making other plans. While we're busy in our minds going elsewhere. So our practice is systematically uh, geared to helping us reorient to this unfolding present. To even the feeling that you have sitting in this room tonight, not looking for anything but this. What it's like just to hear. What it's like to feel your body sitting here. Because this is actually the only place you can ever live. Anything other than this room tonight, anything other than you tonight is imaginary. And it's sad that we, that we miss this. So we started our practice this morning with something that is always present. A beautiful, wonderful touchstone. Not always pleasant, but a wonderful touchstone in the present. And that's our, the sensations that we feel when our body breathes. As I talked about a little bit briefly this morning, uh, after the second sitting, when we put our mind in our body and our body in our mind, when we connect with the breath, what we're doing is we're bringing attention that's often really scattered. We're putting it in the same place. It's like we're rubbing, we're rubbing against reality. And when we do this over and over again, and perhaps you even felt it at times today, when you do this over and over again, it begins a process of creating the conditions for Uh, our mind uh, not to uh, go elsewhere. And when our mind doesn't go elsewhere, it becomes, when it stays here for any kind of sustained period, it becomes calmer. As one teacher said, if, if if you experience, if when your mind becomes calm and you stay in it, you'll, you'll discover that your, your mind is, uh, permeated with, with love and, and light. But that's for another time. But nevertheless, we begin to sense that there's something valuable about having our attention in the same location as our body. It seems so obvious. It's always been, you know, you couldn't have, a, you couldn't have thoughts if you didn't have your body here. But we can become so disconnected. You've probably heard the about the character in James Joyce's, I think it's Ulysses, uh, James, uh, the Mr. Duffy who lived a few feet from his body. And we all have some version of that where we become uh, disconnected. And another thing that happens as we let our mind sink into our body, as we orient ourselves to being right here and not just ha- having the idea of here, but actually feeling it, you actually can't, it's not so easy. We use the word and it's a wonderful trigger, but it's really hard to capture in a word what it's like to feel 
your living presence. It's just, I think when I begin to connect with it beyond the words, and perhaps when you do, I can, I mostly feel a sense of aliveness. I feel all the the various sensations, but I come alive. And I imagine maybe today, even though it's exhausting the first day and it take the mental effort to stay with the practice, especially going against the stream of what we usually do, is tiring. But perhaps you began to sense that something about being present is enlivening. It enlivens not just our energetic system, but it enlivens our senses. I, I don't know if you, when you looked up today, during your walking, weren't the sights more vivid? Weren't the sounds more, more clear? Wasn't the taste more alive when you tasted your meals? Is, I'm wondering, did, okay, I think we're on the same page. And this is a, a function of being oriented in a sustained way in the present moment. When we're not, we are not able to pick up on this uh, the compelling nature of the present moment. The present, the idea here is that if we orient ourselves enough in this way, the present becomes so much more compelling and interesting that the desire to be somewhere else can start to melt away. And it's our desire to be somewhere else that tends to make being at the present moment not so comfortable. Have you noticed? In fact, it's so conditioned in our in our consciousness that there's been studies done about the effects of our, uh, of our daydreaming. And there's a new Scientific American study that, that determined that we spend 46.9% of our time daydreaming or, or uh, with our life pervaded by the non-present. And the conclusions came up with some surprising, well, they came up with some surprising conclusions. It showed that daydreaming about something more pleasant does nothing to make boring tasks more enjoyable. (laughs) Instead, those surveyed tended to be less happy after letting their mind wander than they were before. In other words, rather than daydreaming because we are miserable, daydreaming makes us miserable. Yet we do it so innocently, we go out in search of, of fantasy and planning and visioning, we do it all out of care for ourselves some, to find some relief, but it has, the, it has the opposite effect. So fortunately, there are, these, uh, there are these wisdom teachings. There are different flavors of them, but the wisdom teaching of the Buddha is that uh, the way out of your distress is, is right into your immediate experience, arrived at it in the very moment that you're experiencing your life. When we become so disconnected, we, we deprive ourselves of that deep listening, that deep, uh, feel, that deep con- feeling of connection, that deep feeling of being at home, and our intuition about what's really needed in a particular place. And unfortunately, in being so oblivious to um, to what's actually going on moment to moment in an intimate way, we've exhausted ourselves. Our bodies are exhausted. A lot of the people who said they were having trouble with you, I think you said you had some sleepiness issues this morning. One of the first insights that many people have, 
there are other reasons why we get sleepy. You know, part of it is what Anna was saying. It's there's not much going on here, and you know, there is this little sense that my eyes are closed. There's not a lot of stimulation. It seems like a lot, a lot like it's time to go to sleep. But a lot of it is because we come here and we we put our mind in our body for a minute, and tranquility dawns kind of quickly. A little taste of tranquility. But in order for t- tranquility to, uh, to be sustained, it needs the balance of energy. And when we, de- when we have really low energy, uh, we just, as we joke a lot, and it, the, the retreats often on the first day look like the Wailing Wall in Jerusalem. It's <laughs> 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 a davening retreat. But this reminds us that we, and some of the first insights are that we come to retreats extremely exhausted and often don't even know that we have um, been oblivious to what our organism actually needs. And what, they, what we need is, is here. Um, as Hakuin Zen master said, he said, how sad that people ignore the near and search for truth afar. Like someone in the midst of water crying out in thirst or a child of a wealthy home wandering among the poor. Or Kabir who says, oh, how I laugh when I hear that the fish in the water is thirsty. You don't understand that what's most alive lives inside your own house. And you wander from one holy city to another with a confused look. We're not, only confu- we're not only exhausted, but we get confused. So the Buddha saw that the costs of being so out of sync with, uh, with reality, so uh, un- insensitive to our needs, to our energy system, the, to the realization that uh, that the present is where we the, the present is uh, is where we find vitality. The past and the future, which are merely mental, when we dwell in past and future, we our energy system gets diminished. And it's amazing how much time we spend, as Anna was saying, how much time we spend not in reality in in the imagined past and future, two so-called places that don't even exist. They do not exist. They are just imaginary projections that arise as thoughts in the present moment. The future, we somehow project it as in front of us, the past somehow behind us, but the truth is nobody's ever seen the past or the future. There's only been this, these unfolding present moments with thoughts of the past and the future, always happening now. Whenever I talk about this, I remember studying language in a, um, in a class in graduate school, and they talked about this indigenous culture where their projection, it was, they still had a projection of time like we do, but their projection was that the, was that the future is behind and the past is in front. 
Try that one on for a moment. The idea was that you, could, you can see the past because it's already happened, but you can't see the future. So their whole orientation was different. But in, e- in any case, living, it, living in either of these realities is living in imagination. And it diminishes our vital energy and creates a kind of delusion, a kind of confusion. And it, it tends to make us go in, uh, in, in search of a future that never arrives or in a past that can't, that's already gone. And so he said that there was one thing that would help us kind of break out of this stream of confusion. One thing, and I think I'll read you this short sutra or teaching from the Buddha from a, te- from a set of teachings called the, they're called the numbered sutras or the un- otherwise known as the Anguttara Nikaya. He said, oh, one thing, O oh monks, and for the purpose of our retreat, you are all monks. Monks are those who've gone forth. You've left home. You've entered the stream of the holy life. You have just by being here. He says, one thing, O oh monks, if developed and cultivated, leads to a strong sense of urgency, to great benefit, to great security from bondage, to mindfulness and clear comprehension, to the attainment of vision and knowledge, to a pleasant dwelling in this very life, to the realization of the fruit and knowledge and liberation. What is the, that one thing? It is mindfulness directed to the body. If one thing, O monks, is developed and cultivated, the body is calmed, the mind is calmed, discursive thoughts are quieted, and all wholesome states that partake of supreme knowledge reach the fullness of development. What is that one thing? It is mindfulness directed to the body. If one thing, O monks, is developed and cultivated, ignorance is abandoned or confusion. Supreme knowledge arises. Delusion of self is given up. Underlying tendencies are eliminated. The fetters are discarded. The the tendencies of mind that, that keep us in confusion. What is that one thing? It is mindfulness directed to the body. So this is the heart of, this is the foundation of what, um, what the Buddha taught. It is a process of coming into utter, uh, utter immediacy, utter simplicity. When you walk, just that direct experience of walking. At first, as we said, it's a it's an acquired taste. It seems odd. Looks like the backward of a hospital, land of the living dead, any number of metaphors. But when you are connected, really simply connected with a step, and if you sustain that over and over, just feeling the life of the present moment, everything that the Buddha just suggested, the mind is calm, the body is calm, the, the tendencies of mind are uprooted. 
But forgetting all the, the, glowing, the glowing reports, it is, there's something inherently fulfilling about being simply present. I was doing a little walking today and, and I knew I was going to talk to you tonight and I, I was just reflecting on my own experience of mindfulness directed to the body and walking and, and I thought of this because I was just back at the place where I did a lot of, a lot of long-term practice at a place called Insight Meditation Society in Barrie, Massachusetts, a kind of sister center to Spirit Rock. And I had this spot where I did my walking meditation. And it was in the front of these, this, these hedges. And by the time that I finished the retreat, I had completely worn the grass out. That's another way of talking about how we create a path where there wasn't one before, <laughs> is we just begin to, to practice. And so in some way, we're not following a path, we're creating a path. And you are, and what you're doing here is your path. It's not some kind of cookie-cutter approach. It's really in the very, in the very act of, of your particular practice of mindfulness. Anyway, I did this walking practice back and forth, back and forth. One day, in a moment where really nothing special was happening, it could not have been more ordinary. Just walking and knowing I was walking a thought came to my mind. So sometimes we have some useful thoughts. We have a lot of thoughts and some of them are really helpful actually. But the thought that came to my mind was really just a reflection on the feeling I was having. And the thought was, if I did nothing else my whole life, my life would be well spent. So ultimately fulfilling was just taking a step. And partly because I began to realize that just taking a step and being present with it, I was not, um, I was in reality, first of all. I was not, um, I was not generating a lot of reactivity in my mind. I wasn't, uh, I wasn't getting, uh, I wasn't lost in memories, wasn't lost in plans. I wasn't, uh, I wasn't dwelling on my big issue. Any of you have the big issue that's already visited? I was simply walking. And sometimes when we're, we spend a lot of time on our big issue, it seems like that's all there is. But then when, and you may not even appreciate that the moment then you direct your mind to your body, and you can feel your breath. Right now, as you feel your breath, as you feel your body sitting here, where is your big issue? Where are all your problems? As I like to put it, when you you don't consult your memory. So the healing power of just a simple connection of your mind to your body is literally a split second of, of mindful attention away. So this passage from the Buddha, where he says this mindfulness directed the body, he talks about two things here. He talks about the body as this wonderful anchor for our attention, 
But he's also talking about mindfulness. It brings about rubbing our physical experience against our consciousness, being aware. It activates this, this capacity that we have called mindfulness. And mindfulness is this bare attention. It is, uh, it is in real time, not yesterday, not tomorrow, it's real time comprehension of what's happening. When we have real time comprehension of what's happening, and it can be real time seeing something from great distances, from a, from a vast panoramic view of reality, or it can be very microscopic and immediate, very tiny. It can be very, uh, uh, it can be very cool. It can be very sharp. It can be all. There's all kinds of flavors to mindfulness, but in any mo- moment of mindfulness, the unique, uh, the unique characteristics of mindfulness is it pulls. We talked about in the Q and A today about how our mental states become quite sticky, how, how we really dwell in reactivity. The moment that mindfulness meets anything, it begins to pull the stickiness out of it. The stickiness is the tendency of our mind to push away what's really unpleasant, grab onto what's pleasant, or to personalize and make whatever's happening all about me. Any of you notice yourself doing that today? But the moment that you're simply mindful of feeling angry and you let yourself feel it, in, doesn't mean that there's not a huge momentum to your story, to your reaction, to everything that's going on. But in the moment of just touching into it, this is, this is what this feels like. This is how it's felt through my body. The, the momentum of whatever, whatever uh, reaction we're having begins to loosen. This is mindfulness. It loosens the stickiness in our mind. I, got, um, I had an interaction with someone today uh, that was, that where, I was, where there was some aggression directed uh, toward me. And I know... I know in my heart of hearts that it didn't have much to do with me. And I'm not just saying that as a, as a defense, you could say. I knew that it didn't have much to do with me, but I felt the impact of the, of the um, what I'll call an attack. And it, I felt really uncomfortable. I felt really uncomfortable. Yet I came in... Uh, I came into the Q&A after that, and as I was listening to Anna answer questions, I let myself kind of feel what was happening. And as I sat here and let myself feel the unpleasantness, I didn't, didn't push it away, I didn't wish it wasn't there, I didn't add anything to it, I just felt how that impacted this, this uh, very tender, sensitive body that all of us have. And because I didn't add anything to it, I just brought mindful attention the, uh, there was nothing there, there was no, it was non, my mind was non-stick, there was nothing there to feed it. And so slowly, slowly, it, w- it was given the space to, to let go. And 
the letting go happened because I let it be. And the function of mindfulness is to let things be just the way they are, just how they've shown up. And this is a very rare way of meeting our experience, at least as a starting point. This doesn't mean that you let everything be and let yourself get walked all over or or let the world just fall apart. It means first and foremost, we take in the reality. We connect with what's there. We're just mindful of it. Oh, this is what this is like. We feel it through the body. So by connecting with our body with mindfulness, not only is our, is our mind and body calmed, but it's a wonderful barometer. The body is a wonderful barometer when mindfulness is mixed in with it. Wonderful barometer for what's happening in our body and what's happening, what's the temperature of our emotional body. We can feel it. And unfortunately in our lives, we are uh, much more practiced at thinking about what we're feeling and not actually feeling it. So this is a, an opportunity to experience a level of, uh, of simplicity that, that opens up a whole new world. A process of discovering the underlying world of how life, how life manifests through this body. Because as you probably noticed today, we say the word body. And what do you, what, when I say the word body, you usually think of the, the picture of yourself in the mirror and you think of this kind of thing, this thing that was, was born, that gets old, that you know, goes through the whole process. We think of it more of as a thing. But is your direct experience of the body thing-like? What we begin to discover, and science has really is already discovered this a long time ago, that what we call our body is actually a, a, a dynamic process, that there's nothing that is static and thingness about our body. It is in a constant state of flow and flux. In fact, I brought a few statistics along just to go along with the scientific side. Uh, let's see. Well, these are not so relevant to the talk, but I'll share them anyway. Sneezes can travel over 100 miles per hour. Takes 17 muscles to smile, 43 to frown. Takes, 200, uh, takes t- approximately 200,000 frowns to create one permanent brow line. Most people blink 25 times a minute, about 20,000 times a day. But here we go. Every breath we inhale billions of atoms that end up as heart cells, kidney cells, brain cells. Average adult is made up of 100 trillion cells. If you unwound and join the DNA of the genes in this, of the cells, it would fit in an ice cube. The string would stretch 80 billion miles. Every square inch of the body is populated by 32 million bacteria that are born and die in it. Humans shed 600,000 particles of skin every hour about 1.5 pounds a year. By 70, an average person will lose 105 pounds of skin. Most dust particles in your house are made from dead skin. The body makes a new stomach lining every five days. 
The body makes new liver every six weeks. The body replaces a new head, head hair every two to five years, replaces new eyebrows every three to five months. Body grows new skin once a month. I don't think I need to read more. This is the scientific side. Completely different experience. The immediate felt sense of this. So different to experience it directly. We find in our direct experience, we find aching, burning, stabbing, itching, tingling, squeezing, searing, itch. Did I say itching already? Vibrating. We feel that the whole range of of the fire element, the temperature. We experience this elemental universe of the shifting sands of, of earth, air, fire, and water. Did you notice today, a few of you may have, at first we mostly just want you to connect and be simple in the walking, but you will, over time, you will discover the shift or the changing experience of the different elements of nature. How we go from the earth element, the heaviness, the hardness, and there is that moment when there's the liftoff where the earth element vanishes and there's the presence of the air element. There's almost a sense, there's a few moments of even weightlessness, easy to miss. But yet this is the nature of our body. We're constantly going through this transformation. And experience, experiencing it from the inside is a, um, begins to melt away some of these fixed views that we have about the body. It's so much more interesting than the word. So much more compelling. But we don't stop there with our practice. We use it as our anchor. We use it as our, as our orientation to the present moment. But we also begin quite naturally, and this unfolds in the course of your practice, it will unfold, you start to pick up not just the unique sensations, but you also start to pick up the, um, the, in, the, the experiences in our body that begin to uh, cause many different chain reactions. Uh, our different, how simple sensations can then lead to uh, reactivity in our mind, lead to uh, wanting something or wanting to get rid of something or lead to spacing out or lead to a whole internal drama. We can see how it can easily start with, with this whole world of sensations. And we will formally expand the meditation instruction to include all these different dimensions of experience that will unfold in your practice. But they would show up anyway if you direct your if you did this one thing, mindfulness directed to the body. But the way the teachings are, are spoken about, we are invited, once we have settled in a little bit with our body, to begin to sense the tone of not just the quality of feeling that's going on in any particular moment, but we start to pick up on the fact that every single experience, and then you'll start to see that every experience, both mind and body, every experience, every sense experience, one of those six experiences that we're all having, everyone is accompanied by a little feeling tone. This is called mindfulness of feeling. It's not 
emotions in this sense. But we start to sense that, oh, some experiences have a, a, f- a pleasant feeling tone. So you start to pick up on the world of feeling. This may not seem like much at first, but it turns out that when we have pleasant feelings and they go unnoticed, what quickly follows is, um, I like this. And what usually follows, I like this, is I want this. And what usually follows, I want this, is I need this. And then what follows after that is, um, is what's called craving. We'll go much more into that. But this world of sensation and the, these small little tones that accompany our experience, they are the building blocks for this um, tendency of our mind to wander off and to lose connection with the immediate present. So we will use these feeling tones. This is called the second foundation of mindfulness. Mindfulness of pleasant, unpleasant, and neither pleasant or unpleasant. When it's neither pleasant or unpleasant, we often just don't notice. We just space out, or that's often when we start spinning the, the web of, our, of the imaginary version of ourselves that plays in our mind. And we lose touch with the direct experience of yourself, the one who sits here, that can't so easily be put into words. So we start with the body and we move along through the world of the feeling tones and then we start to include in the instructions things you're already experiencing, but the different mental states that show up, the different mental reactions to these little feeling tones. We invite you to start to notice when your mind is open and relaxed, when your mind is wanting something to happen, when your mind is wanting to resist something, when your mind is, is, uh, is deluded, confused, when your mind is vast, when it's narrow, when it's tight, when it's open. And we begin to notice the whole range of, of, mental, of mental reactions, mental states. And then we see further as our practice goes along, again, things that you're probably already noticing, but not with as much precision as you, as you can once you have this sense of collectedness. Once mind and body have come together a little bit more, you experience enough harmony of mind and body, enough steadiness, then and enough energetic brightness of mind, you can start noticing the different uh, objects of our mind, the different thoughts in, in our mind, the thoughts of, of, of what, I, what I need in order to be happy, the thoughts of who I need to fight with in order to get revenge, the thoughts of, of worry about the future, the thoughts of uh, regret and guilt about the past, all the different uh, mental states that torment us, we, we get to know those. We include those in our practice. Then we expand to include those, uh, the kinds of thoughts associated with wisdom, the, the reflections, the wise reflections, and start to see deeply just from the simple application of mindful attention to our body. We start to see deeply the common laws of all our experience and we begin to see deeply into, into the nature of, of reality. And the direction of everything that we're doing here is all geared toward the potential for, for each of us in this very life to come out of the tangle of uh, fighting with reality 
and enter that stream of nature so that we can be like the, uh, have the simple experience. I hope I have this with me. This is in a haiku that someone wrote while they were on retreat at Spirit Rock. It said, walking meditation. Five deer watching five walkers watching five deer. Where's the suffering? Where's the confusion? Where's the struggle? Where's the fight? Coming to a place where we really can meet life just the way it is without uh, um, dramatizing it to the extent that we do. And ultimately uh, have our heart be really free and open, able to meet joys, able to meet sorrows with much more simplicity, much more kindness and compassion, less fighting. All of this fulfilled by mindfulness directed to the body. We're engaged in a, in a very deep and beautiful healing process. Uh, rediscovering our, our inner, our wealth. As Thich Nhat Hanh put it, you who are the richest person on earth who've been going around begging for a living, stop being that destitute child. Come home and reclaim your heritage. But we use as our, as our means whatever it is that shows up. And we, to the best of our ability... We, we, I'm getting, I'm cramping a little bit. To the best of our ability, we um, turn toward whatever's happening. Acknowledging with our mindfulness, moment, mo- moment to moment, that the way out is in. I think I'll end now with a poem from, from Pesha Gertler called The Healing Time. Finally, on my way to yes, I bump into all the places where I said no to my life, all the untended wounds, the red and purple scars, those hieroglyphs of pain carved into my skin, my bones, those coded messages that send me down the wrong street again and again, where I find them, the old wounds, the old misdirections, And I lift them one by one, close to my heart, and I say, holy, holy. So let's just sit with our holy body right now for a few minutes. While we're sitting here, perhaps appreciating your practice today, you brought yourself here and given this gift of healing. Feeling this body, feeling life right where it touches you.
may all beings realize the blessing of mindfulness directed to the body. May all beings be free. Thank you for listening. Thanks for your practice. I know it's a little hard to sustain attention the first night of a retreat, and I'm glad you stayed with it. And I hope you have a um, 